Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 395th for real this time. Maybe I messed it up last time, week episode of Constructed Criticism. Maybe I noticed while I said it and I just refused to do a retake. Who's to say? I'm your host, Mason, <laughs> joined by my rotisserie draft host, Abe, and my wanting to rotisserie co-host, Spencer. I feel like I messed that up, but I, I nailed it. We. It, no, no, it's fine. I I do want a rotisserie chicken, if that's what you're asking. But I also always woof, want woof. a rotisserie chicken. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> no, I don't know, Mason. Would you like to explain? Nah, don't worry about it. Nothing to worry about. Because today we're going to be talking all about being okay with tough matchups. Sometimes your joke doesn't hit and you have to be okay with that. Just like a tough matchup. But before that, we need to do our ways improving. It is the main point of the show. And Spencer, you're back from a product launch and a whole week of exciting and new things. So I'm going to let you have the ball here, despite the thing not saying it in that order. I actually tried not to play a lot of Magic this week, specifically. If you had asked me last week, I had been playing so much Magic. And I was actually pretty shocked by the standard bands. You were shook? I was not shook. I was shocked. I did not think we were getting standard bands before a new, like, right before a new set dropped. The format had already shifted towards like green mid-range decks so i was a little i was a little shaken but i i did get the chance to go to oasis for a wednesday night standard won that event just mo- classic mono green also adjusted my mono white deck stuff like that looking at kind of how i want to interact with magic led me to say like okay well this weekend is championship weekend for the nfl and i would like to enjoy that with my family and with my friends and really not overcommit myself to like forcing myself to play magic when in all honesty i just want to watch joe burrow uh sling it to jamar chase and it was fun it was it was a really nice break i was going to play the popper challenge this week and just was like you know what i don't want to do that i want to watch football and not forcing myself to play magic is kind of an always improving moment for me that is not something that i would have done in the past i would have not watched football and would have done that instead and i'm really glad that i didn't and i think that i'm happier for it i was also very happy that i watched football on sunday instead of playing the chop the popper challenge because those are some great games i think we all had the same picks mason just picked the home teams i tweeted about this i was a little shocked uh but obviously by that first game and if there's anything that i think that that afc championship game can teach us about magic it is that the game is not over till it's over and you can't just assume that you're going to to continue on the trajectory that you've set out to start the game because they're you're not the only player right like that somebody else is involved in this that person happened to be joe burrow who just apparently he turned it on and patrick mahomes got uh, i don't know what happened he just couldn't make anything happen down i don't know either i don't know, I, if, I don't know if the the secondary just turned on we were peeling top deck after top deck to patrick i don't know what patrick Mahomes was doing at all to be honest <laughs> You don't know because you didn't watch the game. Of course you don't. I don't even think you pulled out the no. lineup. In, in, in all honesty, though, I actually think that like if you watched that tape and understood football and understood Magic, it actually was really interesting to see this team not give up from behind and against something so prolific, like as the Kansas City Chiefs offense. And I had this, I had this moment uh, just this week with with Matt Kling. We had switched from green black food to Jun food in historic. While it's worse in every other matchup, Corvald is actually kind of broken in the mirror. He had this game where I was like, dude, you've been playing this game for like 20 more turns than I would have. I would have already conceded in the mirror. 
and I like actually logged off and like went and did something else. And he came back and was like, he texted me. He's like, just so you know, I did win that game. So shocked. I'm just like, you have the patience of a man that I will never have. I think that the like football as an analog for this always improving moment definitely taught me that this weekend. There were like multiple moments where you think things are over and sometimes it's just about making the next right play rather than worrying about the lead or whatever's going on. Especially when it's not costing you anything, you know? Like, they're all... When it comes to the championship game, they can't concede and go to another one. That is... The, they gotta play it to its conclusion. And, like, I don't know. I've, I've had... My second PT qualification, the PTQ finals, I, like, was in this unwinnable position and just made a play that made my opponent make a mistake and ultimately, like, I did bait them into making the mistake and, like, capitalize that into winning. So I definitely relate to that. You know, you just... You, you got to play the game out when there's nothing there's, there's nothing to do but lose sometimes and sometimes turn into a win. A top eight is like a really good example of this, right? Like, you know, there are so many times where if you don't put yourself in the position to finish the game to its conclusion, right? Then when you get there, you're, you've not been in this situation before. And I, I have a real problem with this and I, I probably need to get better at it. I, I have a real frustration with Magic players that they overvalue the... Um, time in the round and their ability to play a little quicker and give up on games that are not games that should be given up on. Uh, and like, well, this doesn't sound like exactly that. It sounds like it was adjacent to it. And in general, uh, it's a thing where part of my always referring moment, it's going to be talking about stuff, but like one of the things I like mentioned to someone is that I'm teaming with for an event. I'll just say it, it's Connor and sky. It's just, if I see you and you or sky lose and there's 20 minutes plus on the clock. Cause you rushed through a turn. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to be so mad at you. And because <laughs> you know, like there's no reason to give up on games or rush through them. So this sounds like a good transition. Like, you know, what is Why don't you talk about your always improving moment a little bit? Well, I too. First one is this one. It is talking about this. A lot of the times it's kind of overcoming an anxiety type thing. My friend Connor He's grinding a bunch of the NRGs. He's doing really well. He top eight the challenge on Legacy, and he's my limited seat for the NRG coming up in uh, about a month and a half-ish from now. I was talking to him because he was posting uh, and talking about how he was really happy that he played slow or whatever and tight, and I was telling him, like, hey, I'm really happy for you. I'm really glad about that, and I kind of overcame the anxiety and, like, the worst of it all, whatever, and kind of persevered, which I guess kind of plays in this in a weird way, and told him, like, if I see you lose a match because you're rushing and not taking time when there's 20 plus minutes on the clock and we're like in a game three where there's plenty of time, I'm going to lose my mind to be upset with you. Like I'm not going to be a reasonable teammate in that spot because he is, A, it is a bad habit that he and Sky both have. And I'll tell it to their face, I'll say it on the podcast here. They both rush when they shouldn't rush. But B, he has been trying to work on that. And so I wanted to tell him and be like, hey, just so you know going into this, you should extra work on it because – I have only gotten one draw in my life ever. It's a great scar on me. It was in Vegas with an unintentional draw. But it is very easy to play quicker when things go on later if you've played a bunch and you're ready. And just take your time on the spot when you take your time. We do not get bonus points for ending the round with 20 minutes on the clock. Like, so many people just feel like playing fast conflates with being good at magic. And that is just not actually true. And, like, knowing the line stuff like that is cool and whatever, and it's, like, a lot of good players can do it, and you have to do it for those, like, tight time moments, but you're not a better Magic player because you saw the line quicker. So we, uh, right now, I write the show notes in the in the Patreon Discord, uh, and for this show, we actually had uh, Adrian and uh, Colton in there, and somebody made a comment about Gabriel Nassif and how the, the pace at which he plays Magic. One of them had, had made a comment about how, like, Oh, Gabe's not actually that slow. Like, you know, that's just like, uh, like a meme. And I was like, "Are you for real?" And I like quickly pulled up his record. How many draws do you think Gabe Nassif has at the Pro Tour? It's got to be above fifty. It's not that's above fifty. Close. That's a lot, dude. He's played a lot of Pro Tours. Yeah, I was gonna say because the thing is, I don't know when he started playing Pro Tours. My guess was fifteen plus years because he's Hall of Fame, so he had to be at least ten, and so he might be twenty years. So I would have probably guessed thirty-five. It is 27. How many do you think LSV has? Like nine? Uh, this includes IDs oh, for what well, it's worth, oh, right? I so, so, oh, I, yeah. Well, <laughs> I know LSV's top eight of like 10 Pro Tours, so I got at least 10 on that. LSV has seven. <laughs> LSV has seven. How does he have seven on 10? Or seven, seven draws. Uh, I, I, for example, 
Uh, at GPs, by the way, it was way higher than that, Abe. You would have been, like, an astonishing number. Way more matches at Grand Prix. Yeah. It has to be, like, triple digits, right? The thing <laughs> is, is I absolutely agree with what you're saying, Mason. The point I was trying to make is, like, I used two very extreme examples here where LSV plays blazing fast. Uh, you know, Brian Kibler plays blazing fast magic. And then you have Gabe Nassif on the other side, right? And in, in a lot of situations, like, what you really want to do is be Paulo or Seth Manfield, where they are two players that they are taking time when time is appropriate to be taken. There are some turns that you probably can play quickly, and that gives you the time to take your time when it's important to do so. This co- this is a conversation that uh, I've had a lot with uh, with John Skenick, um when we talk about Magic, especially when it comes to like pace of play and stuff, because it's often that you talk about being frustrated when people are playing really slow or making decisions very slowly, but there's there's obviously a balance to be struck, but the thing that I always tell people when they're like, well, I don't know, like, I try to play quickly because I don't want to take too long, or like, how do I know when I have the right time to think? It's like, think about it like if you were playing a game of chess, when you've kept your opening hand, you should roughly know what your first two or three turns are going to look like in most games. You know, you should have an idea of what your hand is doing, and th- those turns should go pretty quickly. And then once you have a sense for what the game looks like, then start slowing down and thinking about the decisions you're making. It's kind of like, the best balance I would try to try to achieve. And it's different for, for all kinds of people, but especially when you're doing a lot of testing on Magic Online, where you have a chess clock, we ran into that a lot during our coaching session, Spencer, where like we're spending so much time discussing and thinking about the board state in front of us, the options available to us, that the chess clock was just going to kill us every, every match we were playing, which is fine because we're playing to learn. But in Paper Magic, it's a little different because you're kind of, it's this shared communal clock of, of the whole round. But there's never a, a wrong time to be taking your time to figure out the right play unless the tournament rules are telling you not to. If you are actually playing too slow or if your goal is to like take the match of time, you shouldn't do that. That's that's not allowed. You say that, but just think of, of the Raiders and, and Chargers, and that's all I'll say. Classic. Do you know how many draws... I, I looked it up because PV is kind of an example of the middle. Do you know how many draws PV has at the professional tour across... 14. Over 1,000 matches. Is it 14? Less. That seems so unlikely. He's got He's got to have at least like 10 IDs. No, but I thought the same thing with LSV. I think this thing, I think the website I'm looking at doesn't count the uh, IDs for what it's worth. What are you using? I'm using uh, Elo, Elo Project. Oh, that's what I used too. Yeah, I think they do. I think they do take out IDs. Oh. Yeah, PV has Is four. It four? It, yeah, it's four. He has 24 That's Grand Prix and four at, P- at Pro Tours. He has four draw across 1,000 matches. Well, over 1,000 matches. so wild. Not to get in on ELO Project cycle. I just thought that was interesting. No, I, I Shota do think has that, 11, by the way, which I was so shook by. I think that PV and Seth like are kind of the middle ground, right? Where there are these two players that legitimately, they'll be playing at this speed that you're like, wow, that's so quick. And then all of a sudden, they stop the... Like, the entire game to focus on and and you know we've we've obviously had pv on the show three or four times seth was a a former coast and like the thing that they're doing is they don't sweat the small stuff they're specifically trying to take those important turns and what mason what i wanted to say to you is i think you're being a good teammate by the way by telling your teammate like i need i'm i'm fine if you don't sweat the small stuff but like what i do need from you is to take your time when time is needed to be taken. I know a lot of times it's coming from the past, and I mean this too. Like, I'm teaming with you. We have a shared record or whatever. And, like, uh, at the end of the day, as long as you tell me that you played the best you could, whatever, I will not be upset with the conclusion of the match in any which way possible. Um, If you played the best you could, that's all I can ask of you, and that's all I would ask of you. That being said, rushing is not playing the best you could. And it is very frustrating when... I have friends come up to me after a tournament. And they're like, oh, I would have won, but I, I just rushed in this one moment. And my opponent came back in the game. And if I'm your teammate in that moment, it's going to be stressful for me. So instead of wearing it on my shoulders with all the stress for no reason, I'm just letting my teammates know, blasting them on the podcast. Let, let, let them have it. I'm going to put them on Twitter too. I'm going to lose my mind if we if we, if we lose because we rushed. It was 20 I played plus. a GP with Michael Hinderocker and Matt Kling where I did not finish a match. Literally, they o would or 2 owed every single round we played. And I did not finish a match playing Blue Eye Control in Modern. 
why play Magic when you could ride along? I know, right? Was... You're playing Magic the whole day. You don't care if you win or lose, really. Yeah. You there just was, get to be told, there was oh, yeah, point, let's go take a break. You're there like, was okay. a point where I put my hand on Michael because he was about to win, and I also was about to win. I was like, no, you stop. And his opponent scooped him up. I was like, what are you doing? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, so if we lose a round with 20-plus minutes on the clock, which I basically, if we're not under any time pressure and we lose because of this, I'm going to lose my mind. That's what's going to really happen. That's what's going to get lost. Abe, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't hear your always improving moment. Yeah, so my always improving moment, it's kind of like one and a half here. Number one is I've still been doing my due diligence on Popper. I've really become excited by the possibilities of the format and trying to find my lane. Right now, I've been doing my research by just playing leagues of the main decks that are either emerging in the metagame since the bans or uh, like are ones I haven't really encountered because of the health of the metagame uh, and, and of the format overall for the past uh, like year or so. Getting my feet wet, understanding the landscape uh, in that. But the other thing is that I have really been focused on meeting... One of my goals for Magic this year, which I talked about, was um, you know really making uh, an effort towards content and towards written content and so i uh i started the especially in the back of the star city announcement that they were going to be letting go a lot of their competitive content creators i started the tree of tales blog tree of tales mtg uh for really just something to into helping uh, other people kind of share their stories and content throughout magic and that has really been something that has lit a huge fire under me to like you know, people have emailed me telling me, you know, parts of their stories about magic, like, you know, told me of the ideas that they want to share that are these high level ideas that they're not sure they could ever, would ever be worth putting out, but they want to put out now. And really working with them, talking with people about, you know, what inspires them about magic, what they care about in magic, you know, even just reading some of their opinions on, on pieces they want to write or articles they have that they would love to love to get out there and doing all that work for the infrastructure has really been very rewarding. And uh, I think it's making me feel at least like I'm, I'm being a better Magic player in the sense that I'm doing more for the community content-wise than I even was just by doing this podcast, by kind of trying to make this space for, for anyone who wants to be interested. So. I would say reach out to Abe. I think what Abe is doing is super awesome. Really quickly, before we go into our main topic, kind of reminder that the event is open on uh, MTG Melee for the R Open. Super exciting to do this. Uh, I know Oasis is excited to sponsor it. And I just want to give a huge shout out to them. Like without missing a beat, like they had a rough beginning to the pandemic. And when I was like, Hey, we want to bring this event back. Like they were super interested and like are also interested in moving things even more forward with the podcast. I just want to thank everybody who's been leaving comments on their Oasis orders. I know that Oasis's inventory has been a little rough for people. People reached out to me that like, you know, they used to go to Oasis for all their cards and it's kind of changed, but they're very interested in continuing this relationship with us. And also, like, if you have cards lying around that you want to sell, like, Oasis's buy list is actually quite good. And I, I would highly recommend it. I don't know how I feel about this one. I don't know if I'm okay with that. Can you uh, talk to us about why you want to talk about being okay with a tough matchup? I think that, that in Magic has taught me a lot about, like, life and about how I go through things. At some point in, I think, everybody's magic career, they get to the point where they stop trying to learn new things. And it can be a lot harder to learn things because you kind of get set in your ways, get to be like a boomer like Abe, right? And, like, you just can't get over the hump anymore. It's hard. Yeah. And, honestly, one of the best things that's happened to me for my magic career is really getting into Smash Ultimate and watching Smash coverage. And one of the things that is really hit hard for me is that in Smash Ultimate, there's like 80-something characters, right? And it very much reminds me of the modern format, where you are literally just not capable of having mono-good matchups. There's too many characters, There's and just like in modern, there's too many decks. And so when wanting to talk about this topic, I just, people will, will create this scenario in their head, and they'll... They'll conflate and confuse hard and unfavorable. Because a matchup is hard, they just assume that it's bad. And I actually do this a lot in Smash. 
and it made me think about doing it in Magic. For those who don't know, uh, one of my best characters is called is Wolf from the Star Fox series, and Wolf is an interesting character in Smash because he's very much like the Jund of the the format, where like he doesn't really have a bunch of like egregiously bad matchups, and he himself like is really lean and can play multiple roles and things like that. And it made me think a lot about modern specifically and how pretty often, like if something is tough for me in modern, I just am off of it. And that's kind of how the topic came up. I don't know if that makes sense. You're off it. What do you mean by off it? One of the reasons I was so hesitant to learn Amulet Titan, for example, is that I had already put so much work into like other style of ramp decks and like having to learn something new that was really different it's kind of like the sunk cost fallacy right where i think that people believe that if something is hard and it takes more effort than they're willing to give in or that it makes it less valuable in some ways and like pretty often for me like not just in modern for what it's worth but like one of the reasons that i was so hesitant to play cobblade for a while for example was that mirror was just disgustingly difficult something's more difficult doesn't mean it's necessarily like harder to accomplish or whatever right like like for example for a long time i viewed kind of like the jun saga matchup um and the grixis shadow matchup for hammer time as like these incredibly unfavorable matchups where like maybe it's not even worth considering how to fight them but once i did kind of think about okay how can i approach them how can i do the work you know it's difficult i have to like come up with this entire plan and also make sure i'm mulliganing towards it and that i'm not settling for hands that i know will lose in the patterns right like you have to do a lot of this extra work up front to get the payoff of getting it towards where it's like oh well sure it's a hard matchup like there are a lot of things that can go wrong you have to do a lot of things right i think that what you're saying is exactly what i was thinking for what it's worth like that work that of getting a 45 to a 55 matchup is actually like usually a pretty insane amount of work. And I think often people will be pretty hyperbolic about those type of matchups, right? Where like they are like a 45, but they're like, oh no, this is like 30% I could never win. And like, I think that the truth is, is that it's not usually like that. And that you are conflating something being difficult with something being bad. You're probably playing a bad deck if your deck has 30% matchups. That's that's true, right? Like, just the, no, I completely agree. So it's a definitely an interesting topic too of like talking about persevering going through these things because I think that I have a pretty interesting viewpoint on this. Where for me, I kind of thought this way up until about 2019. KCI gets banned, and I'm listening to the Rest in Peace game podcast. They're talking about the ban, and Gottlieb says. Amulet Titan is now the best, like, unfair deck in modern. And at this point, I was, like, thinking about buying Amulet. I played some KCI. I played Spirits, whatever. I was trying to figure out what I was going to be, like, moving towards. Because now KCI is gone. And he says, if you think you're a good player or whatever, you have to put in a lot of work with Amulet Titan. But it's the deck that gets you the most, I believe he said, dividend on your rewards. Which uh, I believe to be true of a lot of the good decks in modern. But especially true of Amulet Titan. Uh, once you, like, learn the sort of what the things look like the wind states it's pretty easy to extrapolate from there but either way i was thinking about this and i was listening and i was like that's true like i want to try and push myself and become a better player why am i being adverse to a challenge just because it's like hard or whatever that doesn't make sense and what that what that thought actually led me to which i've told that part of the story a bunch in the podcast like a lot of times but the sequel that i never really talk about is it made me start really thinking about it and it's like well all the magic decks are hard there is no easy magic deck. Like, I'm pretty sure... I'm going to ask a question. Do you think Burn is a hard deck to play? This is for the listeners. Take a second think about it. If your answer was yes, you probably have a lot of work to do. You don't, you don't have a lot of work to do when it comes to magic theory and stuff like that. If you said the answer is no, Burn's an easy deck, I think you need to really look inwards and think about why you thought that because it's not true. Burn is one of the harder decks to play in modern at a proficient rate. You can play it, but you're, not, you're just not doing anything. I just want to add on to this that what mason is talking about and actually him doing this changed me a lot in magic uh because of my friendship with mason where it's at some point i just bit the bullet and was like mason i need learn titan because like i just don't understand titan and i think you and i 
jumped on. I think we played like two leagues together in like a, a little while. I ended up playing it at a 1K. And then like right now, the top tier deck's the deck that I now, have now played the most. And also it changed how I viewed Magic Goals moving forward. The, the story that Mason told on the podcast made me try mono red and mono white very linear aggro decks that i honestly struggled with for a long time a lot more because of that story and so i guess it's just like a public thank you because it's really easy to say that burn is easy right and you just point it at their face right like what how hard could that be but this is actually a joke that comes up pretty often on our scrum team for the for those who don't know the team that i work with is software developers and there was a joke that somebody was going to help with a QA task and it's like, oh, you just test it, right? And it's like become a joke throughout our team all the time. It's like, oh, well, you know, that you're doing a front-end task. It's literally just like colors and shapes, right? But that's that's not actually what's happening. And I think that too often we either think something's too hard or something's too easy because it's not what we know. Everything is hard in magic. And if your goal is to improve and do well and you know, maybe top eight, something like an NRG or an SCG or a Grand Prix or something like that, and you're kind of listening to this, or even local 1Ks and IQs and win this Or the CCMTG Open. Yep, one of that, whatever. Any of those things. It's not going to be easy. That That's just kind of, like, there will be tournaments that are easier than others, and you'll look back and you'll call those the easy tournaments. Like, I, I joke about how when I qualified for the Pro Tour, I was the only person in the room playing Uro. That is an easier tournament. In that does than sound like other. an easy tournament for what it's worth. Yeah, that's yeah. that's got to be top five easy. Uh, my opponents were drawing very well all day, and I never drew Uro. <laughs> but anyways, I did win. But yeah. Pretty great. I'm the best I've ever been. Uh, goat, baby. I, I say all this to say this. If the idea of a challenge is something that puts you off, I might suggest a different game as like a competitive adventure. Uh, because this is not going to be one that is very con conducive to that. And I think internalizing that no matter what you do in Magic, no matter what deck you play or what tournament you go to or what you do, it's going to be hard and challenging. And wanting to work towards that reward will lead to much better rewards than trying to find the easy out. And that's not for me to say like, hey, play this deck over that deck because this deck is harder or whatever. If you know a deck and your goal alignment, like make sure you're doing things, but you're not going to find a deck that's the easy deck. And if it is the easy deck, it's probably broken and everyone else is playing it too. So, like, that's like your hogax of the world where things are just so, like... And there's also probably something hard about it. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 like, your easy decks, like your hogax, are still incredibly intricate combo deck, the way in which they play in precision and stuff like that. So you're going to need to do something like that. So I just say that if this sounds like something that, like, maybe is there, you need to, like, really look inward on it because I, I think it is truly a huge hurdle for a lot of people and they shoot themselves in the foot and so i think that the next thing we start about is kind of like why is it important to be okay with tough matchups and the three things that i had highlighted is one i think it helps you pick your deck uh two i think it helps you understand your deck like understanding what makes a matchup either difficult or favorable or unfavorable and then also i think it really does help your mental state throughout a tournament i know that for a long time Running into, like, runner-runner, quote-unquote, bad matchups would upset me in Modern. And I think that understanding why being okay with those matchups existing will actually help you. Like, you won't go in like, ah, oh, I can't believe that this has to happen to me. And instead, you'll focus on, like, what can I do? Because you've already accepted the fact that your deck will have those type of games. I think it's really important, if you're trying to get good at Magic... To internalize this other thing about, I just got a lot of, I got a lot of heaters today. But basically, it doesn't actually matter how the tournament went. Your magic career is a marathon, and it's a lot of events, and you don't get decided if you're a good or a bad magic player on almost any one tournament. No one tournament's truly gonna swing it. There are people who have won worlds who other pro magic players think aren't that good at magic. So let that be like a little insight on how things go. So, I say that to say this, right? It doesn't actually matter. What does matter and what will get you better in the long term, and we'll do this and internalize what Smith was talking about here, is making as many right and correct decisions and learning from the mistakes and stuff like that that happen. And you're going to play a lot of tournaments where you hit the weird scred red deck or whatever, some crazy deck, and like you lose because of some thing or whatever, and that's that's okay and that's fine. That's dope. That, that happens. 
But what matters more is that we learn, evaluate, and consider it. And we do the best because you won't hit those things all the time. That's not how it works. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Abe and Mason, are you if we get like real nerdy? So for what it's worth, uh, Mason and Abe were not there when I wrote this show. So I am might be dropping like a new concept to the magic community here. Um, but I, I want to go over the type of things that can make a tough matchup. So first of all, we have the gameplay is difficult. The matchup's unfavorable. It takes a lot of mental energy. It takes a lot of time, right? These are things that can consist of a matchup being tough. It's not just the matchup is bad for you. It's, I only have so much mental bandwidth. If I have too many matchups where like my mental capacity goes kaput, like it's probably not a deck for me, right? Also the deck itself playing it too. Yeah, I think that exactly. applies all the, no, I, think yeah. all, I think all these things people have told me about Money Pile and it's just not true about almost any of them. So I would say that you know, before your event, think about your matchups as kind of like a skill point sheet in RPG, whether it's like D&D or KOTOR, you know, you've got these things, right? You've got this sheet of skills that you, you have. And depending on your proficiency or your class or whatever, each thing takes a certain number of points. And then some things might cost more points for you, right? If, if your mental energy is something that you really care about, maybe that costs more points than difficult gameplay or... An and you can only spend so many points on unfavorable matchups before your deck is, like Mason said, like just a bad choice. You just shouldn't play it, right? So if you kind of break down what those matchups look like into that idea, right? Uh, Mason, have you ever filled out like a skill sheet in an RPG? No. That's a lie. Uh, no, Abe? I haven't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So like, does the, what I'm saying, can you kind of help me explain this to the listener? Yeah, I mean... You have a finite amount of decisions you can make when you're building your deck. There's only so many resources, so many places you can find edges to improve or change things when you're building your deck to how it interacts with other things, right? Making sure that the way that you're allocating, you know, either your time and the way that you as a player can interact with those things, right? Like, if you're someone who can't parse big board states and, you know, you were playing in, like, the Bant Company format... Don't, don't play... Don't play Bant Company. Maybe you should play the Blue Red Thermo Alchemist deck. From no, I really get it. Like, find another way to attack that plays into something you can manage because you're not the player who's going to be able to do that. that that's a part of self-awareness in the game, right? Is knowing the things that you can and can't do and what are, things are too difficult. But at the same time, if you know those things and what your stat sheet looks like, uh, for example, my first Pro Tour qualification was off of playing Rally the Ancestors where two weeks, three weeks out from the event, I think, I had never played a match with Rally, but I was watching people play, and I was like, I'm seeing you make all of these mistakes, and having trouble managing all of these micro decisions in, like, how you're sequencing triggers, and what you're sacrificing when, and how you're playing this deck. I'm not going to make those mistakes, and I'm noticing I'm not going to make those mistakes. And also, there's this huge thing where people are just not, they don't want to invest in learning it in the same way, because it has a lot of hard matchups against all of the random pieces of hate people were playing, or the mirror match was too much. But I knew I was able to overcome that, and that paid dividends for me, where I was like, okay, I can I can manage it, so I should. And so I invested my time in overcoming that barrier and being okay with the fact that, sure, some of my matchups, like, you know, I'll have to play against a Kalidus on turn four, or I'll have to play against, I'll have to play against mirror matches where uh, things can get really complicated and the timing of every spell can really matter. But that's the case for a lot of things in Magic. So really being okay with those things existing and not letting them be a barrier to you in the way that you approach, you know, playing a new deck in Magic or a expanding your horizons or, or even just, you know, getting into a format uh, is, is, I think, really important. Like, I've always said, and this is like, you know, Mason's been dropping the truth bombs. I'll meet him. I'll meet him with one myself, which is that, like, a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about Magic as like, oh, I'm a control player or I'm an aggro player or I only play ramp decks or... As much as your stat sheet might lend to you naturally being able to play those things. You know, you might be someone who just combat math is really easy or like, you know, you can kind of you kind of have a feel for how much is too much extension into a board or what spells matter that your opponent are playing. All of that is just things you could learn about how magic works. Those, those are all things you could evaluate on a case by case basis and understand and getting rid of that kind of that box you're putting yourself in is a huge level up moment for every player I've known is, is being willing to play decks that are outside of what is necessarily their comfort zone. And that's what opens them up to learning so much more is that they stop letting these things that they're afraid of being bad at or afraid of, you know, being hard for them 
being yeah, I think I think that you kind of hit one of the biggest nails on the head here, which is that, like, if we're taking that skill sheet example, right, and we're saying like, for me personally, I don't really worry about matchups taking a lot of time. I'm I'm pretty good at caring about key turns and caring about key interactions, right? So that's not where I need to allocate my skill points, right? I need to allocate them to. Does the, am I going to get tired, right? Like, is this going to take a lot of my mental energy? And is there a way that I can stop that before the tournament? Like, Amulet Titan is actually a really good example of where you can actually front load a lot of that work before the event even starts. The key point in this, and what Basin will probably get into next, is kind of like breaking down your matchups into understanding what they're about before the event even starts. While we get into that breakdown thing, it kind of ties into one little point about point allocation that's a little more direct about the game, I would argue. Uh, and that's like thinking about your sideboard and where you need to put extra points too. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, and I'll mention the 15th sideboard slot doesn't matter a bunch. And if you prepare an event with me, I will often tell you, you'll you'll agonize for around an hour. I'll get tired of having the conversation. And then I'll say, what's a matchup you really don't want to lose this weekend? And you'll tell me hammer time, just like everyone else. And I'll say, let's put another card in the sideboard for hammer time. And then now we've got, you know, like, it's assuming we can map everything out and we're not over sideboarding, right? You can just put points in different spots. And so breaking down your matchups and knowing which matchups are like, you know, where are we kind of like the baseline of this, understanding where things are coming from, from testing and whatnot, and kind of understanding what the deck seems to be trying to do, I guess is the best and easiest way to say it, um, will help inform the sideboard thing I just talked about, but also kind of like where you're coming from in that sort of area when it comes to like, you know, understanding the hard matchups for the points, et cetera, et cetera. I knew that this would incite all of us for what it's worth when i was writing the show i was like we're all gonna be excited to talk about this i maybe thought we were doing a different episode until the episode started who knows <laughs> but, <laughs> this is an are interesting we, I, experience are we, doing the, are we doing the wrong episode we'll talk about it after the show's over i maybe okay. had a misunderstanding about what the topic was when i read everything also still didn't understand where we we're going with it and maybe i had different things prepared than we talked I love it. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm being more off the cuff about no, stuff. No, that's okay. I like your off the cuffness. Let's talk about breaking down a matchup because I think that, you know, most of the stuff that comes down to breaking down a matchup is things that the show's covered like a thousand times, right? But when you put it in the context of being okay with a tough matchup, I think that it both lends you to bl- to realize you have less tough matchups than you think you have. So along the idea of like what this topic's called, I kind of thought about this, uh, and this kind of comes along here, with uh, being okay with a tough matchup. Magic players love to say, like Spencer said earlier, we have a 30% matchup or whatever. They're all about saying my matchup's 30%. And Abe, you and I had this conversation, I think, pretty early on into your in the show where we talked about Burn v. Soul Sisters. And it's like, do you really think Burn v. Soul Sisters is like an 80-20 matchup? Like, is it actually that bad? And when you look at Moto data, whenever the Watsi company shows this to us, there's no matchup in Magic that's like 70-30. They don't exist. They aren't real. Uh, they aren't. They aren't. They don't live in the real world. Uh, you're gonna have bad matchups, but they're overcomable, and they're things that you can work on and you can work on improving on. And there's okay to put spots where you don't put cyborg cards and you just take an L because it's not worth it. And they're more the extreme thing that maybe is a smaller part of the meta game. Because it, it, because the cyborg's got spots not gonna make up the percentage you think it is. Can can I jump on top of this, Mason? Because this actually is why the topic was created. When you look at a Smash Bros matchup chart. This is a thing that they do in Smash Bros that I wish that they did, that like really good players did in Magic. They'll literally show you where everyone every character sits in their matchup chart. And what they do is they have plus 2, plus 1, even minus 1, minus 2. Abe, do you know what the plus 1 or plus two represents. I don't. I know the like philosophy and ideology behind it, and I understand it, but I I don't. It know. is five percent. Each one is five percent, which means that Smash Bros. players believe that there is no there's no matchup worse than forty five fifty five to them. But no, it that's that's the thing, right? Like, is Magic players love hyperbole? Like, we love it. But the truth is, is like, are you really gonna lose sixty percent of the games to some? There's so many games that you're just going to win just just because you curved out, you won the die roll. Like, there's so many factors outside of what we put onto it that you have to accept when you sit down to that game of Magic. Too often in Magic, we are quick 
to say and do and think things that kind of fit these kind of assumptions we already have about the matchup, uh, which is where like things like the 70-30 come from, where it's like, oh yeah, this Ponza deck is really good against Tron or whatever. It's a 70-30, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And it's just not real stuff. And there's going to be hard matchups no matter what you do. You're not going to find some deck that doesn't have a hard matchup or, you know, they're not going to have some card that's a hard thing to overcome and figure out how to beat. There's going to, they're always going to be something. And really, it is your job as someone, if you're wanting to be a competitive player and do that sort of thing and excel in these sort of arenas at certain points, to internalize that, okay, no matter what I do, no matter what happens, I'm going to have some challenge, some hill, some mountain to overcome. And it's always going to be higher. But I have to do that sort of thing, and it's going to happen. And so there's no point in really wasting time moaning and complaining about it, and I should do the things that will lead to the most condu like conducive options to winning. Um, we're excelling at whatever my goal is. Your goal might not be winning. It might just be top eighting. But either way, do things that reach those goals, and don't let it being hard be a real factor in stopping you, you know, outside of extreme circumstances. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of broke this down in the show notes into kind of some key points. We have matchups on paper, right? So, like, put our deck lists in front of each other, Mason, and say, like, there are a few things that I think kind of say here, right? And I think, I think you and Abe are a lot better at this part than me for what it's worth, where you create some baseline assumptions... You also build a foundation for your playtesting where like you're deciding kind of what the matchup is about before you play the game, right? This is something that I have a huge weakness in, in, in Magic and honestly in Smash too, which is funny that I keep using this analog, but it's it kind of what posted this episode for me, is like I have a real problem where I treat playtesting like a, a real game. Oh, I talked about this in a Discord yesterday where someone was saying playtesting is washed, which is true. Playtesting is washed when all you do are just playing games. It is not actually testing. You are just you are just playing the game, and that's great. I love Smash. I love Magic. I get it. Have fun doing it. But you're not actually testing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> this is something that came up today playing with Matt Clay in Smash. I realized that I was playing the game, and I switched what I was doing with my character. And then the other day when I was playing Mono Green on Moto, or not on Moto, on, um, on Arena... I was like, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to win this game? Or am I trying to learn what Mono Green or potentially Gruul or Jund or Naya is about? And I think understanding what your deck is trying to do before you sit down leads you to make decisions that will let you test them. And if you're not doing that, then you're doing what Mason just said, right? You're just playing a game. This is the trick to figure out who's good or not or whatever. But one thing that always raises my alarm bells is when someone comes back from testing and I ask them how to go and they tell me I won eight out of two eight out of ten games or I had a 70% win weight or whatever like over maybe the course of a week right and it's like that's not information I I can't you won a lot well, okay why did we win a lot did we have cards that we're doing like I need to know things I don't need to know these numbers that are like not important <laughs> I was gonna say a lot of this boils down to like the value behind like where plan beats no plan, right? We talk about it a lot in a lot of aspects of the show, but when it comes to magic, having a plan and approaching things with intention or with uh, with a, a thought in mind, whether it be the way that you're playtesting, whether it be the way you're approaching a matchup when you're constructing your deck, having that plan like fully thought out and thought through is how you undo some of the difficulty. You are offloading the difficulty into, instead of having to think about it on the fly or you know, like figure out how you're going to make it work with the cards you have. You've thought about it. You've chosen these cards. You know, you've evaluated the things or you, you've made the assumptions. You're like, okay, my plan is now this. How good is this plan? Like that's good playtesting. And we talked about it in the, uh, in the focus testing episode. When it comes down to being okay with tough matchups, right? You're trying to come out with three things. One, who's favored? It's funny because I think that people overemphasize this point. So I don't want to do it on this episode. Who is favored is a data point. It's not a law. I don't know if that makes sense, but like... I would say, tell me what matters in the matchup right, and, that's and who the, has more cards that matter. Yes. The next point is, what is the matchup about? So if I know... Uh, we'll use Hammer Time v. Um, 
Primeval Titan decks, right? If I know that the matchup is about Ink Moth Nexus, because we're both going to be able to get a lot of resources, whether it's Primeval Titan, whether it's... At the end of the day, the truth is, is that Primeval Titan decks are going to struggle with a flying thing that kills me really quickly. Also, I'm not saying that's what the matchup is about. I'm just giving an example here. Then that is the thing that when Mason asks me how testing went, I should be able to report back. Oh, hammer time feels favored. Here's why. How many times were you getting Dryad of the Elysian Grove down early to kind of mitigate these sort of things? Was that a, a key point in the matchup? My thoughts going into it are that it lets you A, get to your Titans quicker, and B, control the board state to make it so that's the only card that matters. Should right. we be playing Ghost Quarter? Yeah, exactly. These are, these are the questions that, like, it then doesn't become hammer time one, we'll say, se like, 70%, right? Which is where people get these numbers. Literally, the most popular magical article I ever wrote was called The New Best Deck in Standard. It was about green-red devotion. We tested 100 matches. Not 100 games, 100 matches with green red and found it to be basically 70% of the against the field. I wrote an article about it. I broke it all down. We did the right things, but the article came across what Mason's saying, where it was like uh, Spencer saying that all of these are favorable. He doesn't know what he's talking about. When in fact, what, what should have come out of this is like, we came up with a really good sideboard plan. We found gruel charm because of mono blue devotion. We found, you know, this Planeswalker package and this sequencing because of mono black devotion. We found this is how you should sequence against blue white control because of the turns in which they have counter spells, right? That's the point of playtesting. I would say that you two are also better at this other point that was kind of my last point in how are we getting the information on breaking down your matchups and understanding where to allocate those skill points, which is gathering opinions from other people. Episode 13 of Constructor Criticism was Surrounding Yourself with Greatness featuring John Finkel. One of the things that John talked about was it, it's really easy to be the best in your playgroup or be the best, you know, in your city or whatever, whatever you're doing, right? Like, if that's your goal, you're probably going to achieve it if you're, like, smart, decent, and whatever. The thing is, is that the way you're going to improve the most, though is going to be talking to people you trust, reading articles, watching videos. Uh, it just proliferates. It uh, compounds in a way that, in order to be okay with tough matchups, you have to be able to support why you think the things you think. It, it sucks that we're human, but I do think you need validation in a lot of those situations. Over the last couple of years, what I've been working on the most as a player from like a, a macros perspective has been doing more things with intention. And that means like, you know, putting more cards in my deck, knowing what I'm doing with them, you know, making more plays in, in situations, knowing why I'm doing it. You know, really just trying to evaluate um, all of my gameplay decisions and all of my deck building decisions along this framework of, okay, what's the rationale? What, what, where is it I'm going with this? When it comes to how you can really get the most out of the people around you is once you have these kinds of thoughts for yourself, and you have these ideas, bring them to other people and question, like, you know, offer them, okay, here's a problem I've identified. Here's what I think my solution is. What do you think of this? Right? Like, give them the opportunity to give you feedback, but you've got to be asking the right questions and you've got to be, you're kind of refining it with the opinions of others is really, I think, the best way to grow. If you're going to be okay with a tough matchup, you should probably check your work, right? Like, peer-reviewed science is like you know, a huge part of that process, right? So if I if I think, for example, we use the, the one we just used, right? If I'm like, hey, I think Inkbot Nexus is a huge problem from Amulet Titan, uh, you know, Mason has now presented me with a specific list of questions to ask about that matchup. Draw Grayson more, kid. <laughs> Don't draw Grayson. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or be busted. Those moments that you're having, right? It is so easy to isolate an individual playtesting event or an individual moto league and just t accept it as fact. But it's that's not what it is, right? You're you need to gather more information than you could possibly and get on your own. Ultimately, like 
to kind of wrap it up, when it comes down to it, what makes things difficult, and when you feel like a matchup is difficult, or you feel like Magic is being difficult for you right now, that's coming because the results that you're seeing are at conflict with what your intuition is, right? The decisions you're making in the games you're playing are not lining up with the outcomes that you want, and that means either one of two things. Either you're getting extremely unlucky all of the time, which is not very likely, or that you need to evaluate the decision-making processes you're going through. If it, if it is actually something where, like, you know, you, you can push it from a 45 to a 55 matchup, where it's actually favored if you're making the right decisions and you understand that those are decisions you need to make, well, it just means you need to pick up that understanding and you don't have it and you need to become aware of that, right? Like, that's what good testing is about. That's what really changes the way that you feel about the matchup you're playing is once you, at least for me, is once I feel prepared for something, I no longer have to worry about it. Like, this is something that's happened a lot in mirror matches. One of the things I always would hear at tournaments is people be like, I hate playing the mirror match. It's the worst. And it's like, well, why do you hate playing the mirror match? You should be prepared inside and out to know everything your opponent's doing with their deck everything that you need to do to beat it because it's all the cards that you're playing and you should have already thought about how you should already not kind of know intuitively the weaknesses of your deck the strengths of your deck the things you should interact over i think that's like a key point to this episode for what it's worth and like a huge change in my mental space in magic i'd be pretty stoked to play the mono green mirror to like get you know like win a hundred thousand dollars or something right now like, I, I actually would just... I did that at the Invitational three months ago. <laughs> How did you do, buddy? Uh, well, I did great in the standard portion. I 6 2 <laughs> That's a really good point. Uh, Mason, anything else you want to jump in to kind of wrap this up? Before? What did I tell you my plan was for the Mono Green Mirror? At the at the actual factual $100,000 tournament we Player played in. That, that was my plan. I had all my points in blue-red. I had, I had my, like, four slots I dedicated to the Mirror. That was it. There were only two decks I cared about, and that was the plan. And uh, sometimes it'd be like that. <laughs> the analog that we're using, right, is an RPG skill set, like, sheet, right? And the truth is, is that you get one of those every event now. You know, how much do you like RPGs? Just, like, you know, fill one of those out every event. Let's go! That, that is what deck selection and like is, like, a big part of it. And I also think this is part of the reason why we see... People who are on like these big testing teams and are really strong fundamental magic players doing so much better at standard events versus at modern events and legacy events, you'll see sometimes people who have a less known results and less pedigree. Part of this is because the data, the information, the things you build up, the things you've learned and you overcome, those all accumulate in older formats because often your deck doesn't actually go away. Like I've been playing Amulet Titan now off and on for four years almost. So like or I guess three and a half. Either way, like that, like the data I have before, some things might change in matchups as new cards get added, but I'm working on like a bunch of, you know, residual knowledge. While a standard, it's kind of new format, new things. Often there'll be things that you would think are true from past formats and maybe aren't true about a current one. And we see this kind of happen. I, I've literally gotten messages from people and they've sent me screenshots of text messages from me to them where my name in their phone is Scapeshift Guy. At some point, you have built the knowledge, but that means that you need to apply that in other areas, as Mason was just talking about. It's not just about Mason's knowledge of Amulet Titan. It's about Mason's knowledge of modern through the lens of Amulet Titan, if that makes sense. What I was trying to get at was more at, like, um, it's going to be harder the less time you have with the format. I think this is why standard is harder, because it changes, so your time with it. While, like, well, the cards are insane, you still have that information, but when the rotation happens, and we see things like the invitation, which are, like, the first big standard tournament, these are harder times and things where player skill and amount of time really matters a lot more than modern. Like, if I was playing a modern IQ or whatever this weekend, I would play some leagues, do my homework or whatever, but not nearly as much as I would for, like, a standard one. My final thoughts on this is that if this episode was helpful, helpful to you, let us know. Leave a YouTube comment because... Or, 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 you know, reach out to me. I know that the conversation of writing these show notes was one of my favorites with patrons in the last, like, years. Like, actually years. It was a really good conversation. I, I really recommend that you start looking at your deck selection choices this way. Because I think that you will find you are a lot happier through the event and going into what Mason said really early in the show, like you'll find a lot of peace in your decision when you do this work up front. 
and when you become okay with these things. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Constructicrism. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. This week we have more of a for fun question after such a serious topic, so it's been kind of a good time. And it is, what is something you would fundamentally change about Magic as a game to improve it? And I would set limits on how much Magic people were allowed to play as if it was a phone game. I think one of the biggest problems with Magic is we play it too much. So A, the game gets solved a lot quicker, and B, people get unhealthy relationships with it. And I think Magic is actually one of the best games ever, and I would not touch the mana system, which is the only big thing I could think of. So I would limit the amount of Magic that people could play. That's insane. That is my. I think that I've done that to myself, and I have a better relationship with Magic because of it. I try to post, like, you know, a trophy every week on Twitter. I try to, like... If you literally are spending more than 40 hours playing Magic and you are not getting paid for it, you might need to scale it back. You saying I only get I only get like uh, what three matches of traditional standard a day? Uh, we're getting gotcha pull on me. Can I store them? What's the max I can have? Like what? I feel like we, the... we're down a road that I don't understand, and that this is an inside joke between my co-hosts. If it's a, no, just if it's just a you know you know what a gotcha game is. It's one of those ones where you you open you open the booster pack and the anime girl comes out, and then it has different stats. Spencer doesn't yeah he's a mobile app developer but doesn't know gotcha games. Oh oh. It's a loot box game. No, that's not like that's you, not yeah, what gotcha Mason's games saying. Are no. games where you yeah. don't get things and you roll and you open things no, kind of like, a, like a card game? It's a loot box game, and they are time gated on how much you can actually play them. I'm I'm saying I want to time gate magic so that people don't play as much magic. How many want... hours would you give magic players to play magic? I would give them two and a half hours a day. Uh, you can stock that up. That's that, that gives you time to play a league of moto. I am shocked. And so tournament tournaments don't count. Oh, but okay. Like, tournaments don't count. More than that. Okay. Uh, got it. Got it. I mean, there's another question I have, which is make it a living card game. I think that's a good set of rules to establish a healthy relationship with magic. I don't know. That that's something I would ever want to see. I, to I, I how do you change it? It's not doable. But you, I got to ask the question of what I would do, not what I think. Did it on a oh sure yeah. <laughs> Good point. I fully believe in the thing that I would change, and I have only said it for how long has this podcast been a thing? It makes it eight years. You've been, you been here years? the whole time. Why are you asking me? Theros. That's Theros not true. There there's literally a year where I am not here and you well, are. How but many I'm, were okay, there before well, that? I'm going to type out when Theros released. <laughs> I don't know. All right, so <laughs> 2013, the podcast is, uh, get yes, nine years old. I mean, technically uh, it's eight and a half, but it's There nine. are forever cards in standard. The oh, I forgot about the set. forever cards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, hold on. So, the cards that are always legal are... Incinerate, Rampant Growth, Doomblade, Mana Leak. I will accept miscalculation for this one if people think that it's somehow more fair. And then I don't care what the white card is. You no 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 no. You have to care what the white card so, is. So so if it was up to me, it would either be um, Path to Exile because I think it's like. Maybe the most fair white removal spell ever printed at its cost. Like, I think that it is kind of a perfect standard card in a lot of ways because of what it does to creatures. The other one that I would accept, though, is actually, like, Honor of the Peer. I know that that one's a rare and the other ones are different. But I also really love what Honor of the Peer does to kind of the aggressive... It would It would either be... A wide enchantment. I could also get behind Oblivion Ring effect here instead of Path. Um, yeah, I mean they do a lot of the, the stuff you're already talking about for white. Yeah. I was thinking like a like a fiend hunter style card would be. Would it be could be. Thing. It could. I so that I, that I believe is already true. That would be my biggest change. I but I would actually just straight up say it. Like I would just like make an announcement as Wizards that incinerate rampant growth Doomblade. I actually am going to say Honor of the Pure. I think Honor of the Pure would be a really good one to to do with. Honor of the Pure and uh, Mana Leak. What, give me your opinion, Abe. We doing, we doing Mana Leak or we doing Miscalculation? Uh, we're doing neither. We're, we're not doing a two-mana counter spell. <laughs> as much as I love Mana Leak, and for a long time I was like, 
Give me mana leak. I love that. It's yeah. That is that is a hundred percent the chance I would make to magic. I think that magic is a better. And what what you'll notice that I was I was specifically trying to give cheap answers and threats within the color pie that fits the color that are always legal. This is something that I thought Hearthstone did really well that people got sick of because the game got quote unquote stale. But I actually think that Hearthstone was right to do it. Yeah, I mean, they also had to rework the classic sets, and that makes sense. The game changes over time. A lot of things change. Yeah, and I'm not but, saying that, know, like, I, I you put, can't... I might put Manalik more in the, like, preordain, or maybe not preordain exactly. Like oh, I'd, be, I'd be totally fine with preordain instead, like for opt, what it's worth. Opt has been I, a great no, card. No, I would not do Opt. I, I think I want these cards way stronger than w- what you want them. What if what gets Thalia? Wow. <laughs> wow. No, what now I'm just trolling you. What I'll say, Thalia mine's a pretty simple called. answer. Is that I we did uh, hold on we gotta rewind though because we did not say who this Patreon question was from Mason. It was from Dylan Jealous, Dilly Jilly worth a milli, my boy back home. Okay, love him. I'm not, I'm gonna do a flip with Dilly next time if he wants. Oh man, I love Dilly. Well, I'll say my answer pretty simple. I would remove the London Mulligan from formats that are not standard. I guess probably like standard Alchemy Historic, whatever, because they're on the Arena Client mostly played. In best three matches, I remove it from like all non-rotating formats. I think that it's good and limited, it's good and standard. I think the smoothing is very good there, but I think the way it's homogenized, drawing like, you know, a turn one discard spell or a turn one, you know, whatever your your strongest turn one card is, it's really kind of invalidated a lot of uh, cards that used to fuel consistency and uh, made gameplay a lot less divergent across the board. I forgot about it. I got Stockholmed on the old uh, London Mall. Mulliganing should be a... Uh... A resort, not a tool. That's my hot take. Yeah, yeah. The fact that there are many formats where I often just and and you know I'm playing a deck right now in Modern Hammer Time where I often just am trying to mulligan for a hand that has the strongest turn one and two is not as good as it could be. So. Oh man, are you so. telling me that we should go back to the Vancouver Mulligan? Because I agree. That, that's basically what I'm saying. I think it's really good for formats like Standard and really good for Draft where your land spell distribution matters so much more, but it's terrible in high power I, I think I think that the Vancouver Mulligan was perfect, and I literally don't know why we changed it. Too many non-games. Arena, baby. Okay. I... Oh, it was, that was before Arena, wasn't it? Oh, no, no, it wasn't. No, yeah, it was, it was Arena that changed it to the new Mulligan rule from the Vancouver Mulligan. I think the Vancouver Mulligan is like... I'm actually changing my answer. Screw what I just said. I Bring back the Vancouver Mulligan. It was so much better. I think if you have the London Mulligan for only best of one games, if you had it for, you know, even for standard limited formats. Aggressive decks. The Vancouver were, Mulligan was great, though. Uh, the, think. the Vancouver Mulligan is the best Mulligan rule in the history of Magic, and we should go back to it. That's my answer. YouTuber, uh, as a new competitor, uh, this episode was really, really helpful. And I, I just wanted to say that these type of messages make my day. This was about personalized goals. So thank you, Mason, for the episode topic. He then says, uh, do you have any recommendations for slowly buying into a format or has the new rotation of modern made it too hard? I like that new modern only sets coming out is like a rotation for people now. This is my advice. If you want to get into modern, you should... Head on over to Oasis Games and use code. Would that be good at checkout yeah. to get fifteen percent? Oh, sorry, my bad. I thought no, it's fine. That was the whole thing. I, I do think that like <laughs> Magic cards really spiked, just like every other collectible during the pandemic. We went from like a lot of four hundred dollar modern decks to like a lot of a thousand dollar modern decks. And my opinion is going to make a really happy. I would say ignore modern and just go into Pioneer. That's a really good piece of advice. What I would say if you are set on modern in that format, you're gonna have to like either pick to play a deck like burn where still you're probably going to shell out for some specific very niche expensive cards or bite the bullet and buy uh like your set of ragavans and play blue red murktide and then you can pivot that into a number of decks all of the cards that you're buying are cards that are going to be staples in the format at one point or another you're going to have like scalding tarns other blue fetch steam vents dragon rage channeler you're gonna have the core of that on holy heat and that's pretty easy to leverage into like grixis you just need to get some more lands Former co-host of the show, Quentin Pierce, just bought into Modern, and he bought Blue-Red Murktide, but he made sure all of his fetches were Grix's fetches so that he could expand his yeah, collection I, I later. I thought you're going to have to really on something. That's the best place to do it other than picking a specifically cheap deck. But overall, just, you know, 
start from the things that are not going to ever lose value unless they get banned, which are unlikely to get banned, like fetch lands or shock lands. You know, start from things that are the most stable in value and work your way up. I think that's uh, that was the way that I did it when I was growing up. It was just I wanted to build a legacy deck because that was the other format. You're still growing up, babe. Yeah. You're still young and nimble. Still a young, young boomer. I would say it is okay to have the suboptimal version of a card if it is much cheaper, and it means the difference between playing and not playing. I think a good example of this from a deck that is a bad example of this is Money Pile. Uh, some people play Wheel of Sun and Moon <laughs> in the sideboard, which is a $40 solution to rest in peace. Uh, as someone who bought one of our good sponsor Oasis games and have never played the card, I regret buying Wheel of Sun. <laughs> it's okay to have a card like Tormod Script instead of Surgical Extraction. Surgical might be stronger, but if the difference between you playing or that sort of thing is that, it's fine to pick up those cards that are also good, maybe slightly worse. It's okay. You don't have to be so addicted to that. Like everything these guys said, slowly buying in, that sort of stuff, yada, yada, it's really good. I vividly um, remember back in the day, I think it was during the Treasure Cruise Legacy format, there was a guy who top-aided with a Jeskai Delver deck with one Hallowed Fountain in it because he just could not find or afford another Tundra. I love it. Sometimes it's got to be you, man. That, that actually happened at multiple SCG events. We used to talk about them podcasts all the time where, like, this person has zero... Uh, dual lands in their deck they actually just like straight up have one of each of their three color <laughs> shock lands and like they're playing extra basics and also it happens to be the blood moon was good this weekend oh, so yeah. get wrecked that could be you <laughs> uh huge shout out to william and then also huge shout out to basically if we we use your comment this week please reach out to me on twitter at spins h we're going to hook you up with some either promos or Oasis Game Store credit. So, Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to find me, you can find me over on Card Kingdom right each and every Thursday this week. You can get a Kamigawa article. Check it on out. Check me on Twitter at Mason Clark, and you'll see me here each and every week. Spencer, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? Yeah, so I'm at Spencer13H. I currently have, like, multiple videos recorded, whether it's for the CCMDG YouTube or the He's Game Media YouTube, and I'm actually looking for an additional editor. Surprisingly enough, we're overworking the guy doing this. Thank you so much, by the way. Uh, and I need uh, some additional help. I, I'm making magic content. I'm making you know, nerd content over there and I can plan on continuing it. I I'm really happy with how the kind of last year has gone and I'm going to keep going. So you can also find me uh, crushing on Abe Stein, uh, wherever he be. I'm easy to crush on. You can crush on me at twitter.com slash more nothings. And you can check out my new projects, uh, tree of tales, MTG at tree of tales. If you are someone who plays magic, has stories to tell about magic, you know, wants to write some tournament reports, get your name out there, share your love of magic with the people. I have a blog that is like specifically designed to help people get that out there as we feels like we need it more than ever. So uh, yeah, if that's the thing you're interested in doing, absolutely send us an email, DM us on Twitter, whatever, hit us up. Mason, where can they find you? They already know, baby. I mentioned it earlier. Don't worry. You just lost in the sauce of my eyes. Yeah, he went. You're, he went. My he eyes, went baby. first. I got wow. you in the spin zone. I know it happens like that. That's <laughs> I <it>. haven't eaten. <laughs> I, I, I'm also hungry. So we'll see you guys all next time. Okay. You're supposed to struck me. Edit Pretty that. Well. You got it, editor. We nailed it. <laughs> Hell yeah. No, leave it in. Indicate. That was great. I'm stopping.